invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis chapter 22, rather. We've already kind of looked at Genesis chapter 2, haven't we, for the past few weeks. Genesis chapter 22. Uh, As I said uh, not too long ago, what I wanted to start doing was going through a series of lessons that really just focuses on the whole counsel of God. And by that I mean from Genesis to Revelation, there are treasures that God wants us to, to see and utilize uh, in it throughout from, uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so that has been my goal is to uh, start in Genesis with a few lessons that I think are some, some important lessons for us to take. We obviously won't be able to look at ev- absolutely everything because that would take a very long time uh, as we are trying to make sure we get through the entire Bible. But... Uh, specifically, um, this time, I wanted to focus in on uh, the life of Abraham. And last week, we kind of just looked at an overview kind of perspective at the life of Abraham. And we, we talked about how his life was an example of what I would say is just it's a wonderful dis- display of true faith. Of what faith is supposed to look like in the life of a believer, in the life of one who is a citizen in God's kingdom. And I would say that Genesis 22 is certainly one of the greatest moments of, of uh, really Abraham's life of faith. And in Genesis chapter 22, what you find at the very beginning is that it says God tested Abraham. And you, if you already, if you've read through the through the Bible story, you know what we're getting to. And this is the moment where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son. And you can just imagine how difficult uh, that would be to, to, to have waited on this one person for so long. God to deliver on that. And then you have to give it up. Uh, I do think that there is just something in that notion. that There's application there that even fits into uh, the new covenant uh, desires that God has for his people. So what I want to do is start just by reading the text. Uh, as you go through... We're not going to read the entire chapter, but as you go through the main point of this chapter, Abraham actually doing what God says, obeying God as as God asks him to do this very difficult thing. Um, What you find is, I think, a major theme in the Bible, and it is the idea that the Lord will provide. And what I want to do is make that point as we look at two major things. We're going to be just going through two main points this evening. The first is going to be... As I said, what I, one of the that major theme that the Lord will provide, specifically focusing on Jesus, and I think that this story, as I mentioned at the beginning of this series, uh, uh, there are many passages, there are many stories, especially in the Old Testament, that are supposed to be glorious and are supposed to be things that we look at with with eyes wide open in excitement, because I think it's a very clear depiction of Jesus. This is one of those stories. You just see shadow after shadow after shadow. Uh, especially in the offering of Isaac. Uh, and what I want to do is look at that for the first few mo- uh, moments of the study this evening. Just look at that, the connections, the various connections to Jesus. And then just end with some applications, specifically focusing on, uh, again, Jesus. Why that sacrifice was so very important. Um, and so we'll just start by reading uh, the first few verses here of Genesis chapter 22. I want to have an idea of where we're going as we go through this study from the very outset. So Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, 
Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now let me just stop for a moment, because I don't want to forget this later on as we go through some of these points. But can you just imagine knowing what Abraham already knows, what God has told him to do. He understands. He understands clearly what God has told him to do, what he's instructed. And as his son asked him that question, you just imagine the emotions that Abraham would have felt. But continuing on in verse 9, after that, it says, They came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now again, I know that's uh, a bit more lengthy than what we usually start with, but what I wanted to do was have the context. I want, I want to know where we're going. I want to have the story already in our minds so that way we can see some of what I think are clear connections to Jesus, Isaac being the shadow and even to a degree uh, Abraham being a shadow of something as, as, as we look at this story. So let's just focus on this for the first few moments of our lesson this evening, this idea of of seeing a type or a shadow of Jesus in Genesis chapter 22. First of all, in, I don't know if you noticed, but there was a few times where I ended up slowing down because, well, I, I knew what the structure of my outline. I knew where I was going. But especially as you look at verses 2, 12, and 16, there's a, common, uh, there's a consistent theme in, in, how, in how the Lord speaks about Isaac. In verse 2, he says, Take now your son, your only son. And I love in verse 2, he also adds, whom you love and offer him there as a burnt offering. You skip down to verse 12 and you see again do not, uh, that when, when Abraham was about to slay Isaac, he says, do not stre stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him for now I know that you fear God. And how does he know? Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then again in verse 16, as he is swearing by himself, uh, declares the Lord because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now, I, uh, and he continues to say, I will greatly bless you. Now, 
I think that's, I think there's a reason that you find, as I've said before, repetition in the Bible story, all throughout the Bible story, especially in the prophets, what you find is, I think, God is trying to emphasize something. In fact, whenever you see that idea, uh, especially when you see a word repeated over and over again, maybe two or three times, what it's doing is just emphasizing, surely, surely I say to you. And I think that that's kind of the case with repetition all throughout. It doesn't necessarily have to be right beside each other, the, the same word, but rather you can have a theme that you find from the very beginning to the very end. And here is one instance where you see the, the, this idea of Isaac being the, his own, uh, you know, your son, your only son, whom you love. Who does that sound like to you? Uh, just a couple of passages that I want to look at. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17 very quickly. He's, uh, this is uh, John, the, John the Baptist. Well, well, I'll go over there very quickly. I believe this is uh, at, at the baptism of, of Jesus. John the Baptist is, is looking. Uh, he's with Jesus. Matthew chapter 3. Just get a little bit of the context. But specifically in verse 17. I'm in John chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 very quickly. Matthew chapter 3 in verse uh, 14. John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me as Jesus is trying to be baptized by John? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Who is that voice? Well, it's the father. The father speaking about his son, his only son. In whom he loves, and then you, uh, his beloved son, and then you go over just another passage that we see this idea in John chapter three and verse sixteen, a passage that we're very familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so, what do you find in Genesis chapter twenty-two? Well, a father who has to give uh, <laughs> a father of really a long-awaited beloved son who was born miraculously. And even past that, after the son had been given, after the son had been born, the father has to give up the son as a sacrifice. And so from the very beginning of the Bible story, what you find is very, I would say, tight connections being made to what you are going to see in the son. Uh, not just the son of, of Abraham, but the, the, the real son of promise that has been awaited for such a long time. In First John chapter 4, it really emphasizes the fact that he has uh, uh, that he also has to be given for that sacrifice in verse first John chapter four and verse nine. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, again, it's not just that he is the, the son of promise that long-awaited son that had been given, but the one that also had to be sacrificed for a specific purpose. And so I, I think you find a tight connection there. Well, not only do you find that idea of, of the, uh, the only son, that son of promise being offered, but you also see the notion that he is going to be uh, dead for three days even. Now, you look over at Genesis chapter 22 again. Genesis chapter 22. We're, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11 in just a moment. But Genesis chapter 22, 
beginning in verse 3, it says, and I love the fact that you really do see Abraham's urgency and you see his, his dedication to the Lord. Because when God gives him this command, he doesn't argue. <laughs> At least it's not what we're told. And he doesn't try to delay or, or maybe go you know, somewhere else and try to hide, maybe like Jonah. No, but he rises early in the morning. And that is an indicator, I think, especially as you look through the Psalms, you find this idea of those who would rise up early in the morning to go to God, to speak to God, to try and, and uh, find favor in the eyes of the Lord. This idea of, I think it just carries with it dedication, strong dedication to the Lord. And so early in the morning, Abraham rose, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him on the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance now as we were going through the text originally I asked that we take a moment and just think about what Abraham might have thought the entire time that he was taking his son that he was going to obey God and slay a son give him as a burnt offering can you imagine thinking through what you were going to do for three days. You know, it's been said that the hardest part about oh, well, many things, whether it be uh, waiting for uh, a report from the hospital or, uh, you know, just waiting to see whether or not you get into a school that you're trying to get into, whatever the case may be, the hardest part is the waiting because you just don't know. And we get so anxious and we get just so strung up and stressed out because we just want to know. We just want it. We just want the answer. Well, with Abraham, it wasn't just it wasn't just that he uh, was waiting for an answer. He knew what was going to happen. And Abraham had to walk, march, all the way to that hill, all the way to that mount to sacrifice his only son. And again, as Isaac questions the father and says, What's, you know, how are we going to give this burnt offering? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham having to say, the Lord will provide. The Lord had spoken. It kind of makes me think, and maybe this is somewhat disconnected, but it kind of makes me think about the Last Supper when Jesus is eating with his disciples. He knows that his time has almost come. And he knows that the cross is just it's looming, just hours away, after, along with the trial and the mocking and everything. And, and as he is partaking of that final Passover with the full force of law, can you just imagine what Jesus is thinking? All of, all of Israel would be thinking about the deliverance that God had given to his people all those years ago, that he had delivered them from the bondage of Egypt, and they partake of this Passover lamb, and they think, oh, what a beautiful thing. And Jesus is sitting there like, you have no idea. I, trust me, I understand what this Passover lamb means, because I'm that lamb. And, and Abraham, in the same way, I think, knowing exactly what's going to come, how hard that must have been. And we even see what Abraham was thinking from uh, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be, shall be called. And so there's the promise. Uh, that's why we refer to Isaac as the son of promise, as the scriptures do. In verse 19, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now, for that full three days, to Abraham, Isaac was dead. And I think this just speaks to the faith that we were talking about last week of Abraham. Because it wasn't like Abraham was all the way there trying to bargain with God. It wasn't like Abraham was trying to make sure that this would not happen. Rather, he had such faith that when God said that something needs to happen, Abraham considered it done. And we kind of 
we briefly mentioned this last week again as we were talking about faith and what faith is it is the it is not just you know believing that god exists but it's believing what god says trusting in what god says and though the promise may seem bleak if god has promised something it is as good as done that's a part of true faith and that's that's abraham but not just not just believing in the hope that we have but being willing to do what the most difficult things for that hope, for the God who has given us the promise. And Abraham displays that so beautifully here. And, and so to Abraham, Isaac, he was dead for those three days, but he received him back as a type. And what is that type supposed to be referring to? But a type of Christ. Jesus, I think, was the substance of that type. Because Jesus, we're going to talk about this more in just a moment, he didn't... It, he didn't just get to the last moment and then, well, there was a substitution made so that way he did not have to die. No, the, this story, the dagger fell. And it was not stopped. And the lamb was slain. And the son was slain. But did he remain in the grave? Well, for three days he was dead, but then he rose again. And through that resurrection we have uh, that life in him. But you see here in Hebrews chapter 11 that... Isaac was just a type of this beautiful story that we find in Jesus, uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Well, going beyond that, I think another connection, and just very quickly, uh, the, just the very fact that by the, the very means by which they were going to be slain, they carried that load. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 6, it says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering that was going to be uh, what, what killed Isaac. He took that load and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took it in his hand, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. Now you go over to John chapter uh, 19, very briefly in verse 17. It says that they took Jesus therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the uh, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now this is just kind of a quicker point that I wanted to address because even in the smaller details, I think what you find are these tight connections referring to Jesus, just pointing towards that sacrifice that we are going to have, the more beautiful story. Let me just tell you, as I, as I talk about all of this, I'm not ever trying to indicate that Genesis chapter 22 is, is not a beautiful story and that Genesis 22 is not maybe as, as dark and serious and somber as it actually is. I'm not ever trying to depreciate its value. What I'm saying is the story is grander when you find its fulfillment in Jesus. And that is the whole point that we are, that's the whole point of going through the Bible is looking for Jesus on every page and making sure that when you get to certain passages that talks about sacrifice for atonement. Well, what is the ultimate sacrifice for atonement? That's Jesus. What is the sacrifice that, that puts us in a, um, a better place to commune with God? It's Jesus. I, I even think when you look at, especially I, I believe it's Numbers chapter 19, when you look at the offering of the heifer and what that signifies, I think you see yet again another type of Jesus. Um, and if there was a second bulletin, I would have put a separate article that even talked about Numbers chapter 19 specifically. Uh, but it, as I was going through that article, it was just, it was amazing. All of the, uh, you know, as you just read through just Numbers chapter 19 with Jesus in mind, it just enhances the joy of the passage. And maybe it just gives it meaning. Because sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we look at certain stories and certain offerings and we just think this is just random rules. None of it's random. Because ultimately, as we said this morning, that law was always pointing to Jesus. And 
the people of God could have recognized Jesus had they known the law better. And what you find is that the faithful, they always recognized him. Simeon in the temple in, in Luke chapter 2 right, holds, holds the creator manifested in the flesh in his arms. And he holds him up saying, now, now your servant can die in peace. Now I can go to the grave because this is the consolation of Israel. Where the unfaithful, they would never see that. Rather, they didn't want to see that as we talked about this morning, as I, as I said just a moment ago. But when you have Jesus in mind, as you look through all these stories, it at the very least gives it meaning, knowing that this is a part of the story ultimately to get us to that point. Maybe I don't see it fully, but it gets us there. Um, and so at the very least, that's why we should appreciate all these things uh, that God has done for us. Well, going further, this, and this will be the last connection we look at for this point. But focusing a little bit more on the Father, focusing more on Abraham. It is the Father that has to stretch out his hand to strike the Son. In verse 10, what you see is Abraham fully going forward, fully intending to do what God had said. As he stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But what stopped him? God saying, you've done well. You have obeyed. Since I know you fear me, I will bless you. And then he gives him that, that substitution, that sacrifice that saves his son, that uh, ultimately brings his son back to, to him, back to life, essentially. As you see Isaac as a type there, as we already looked at. But I want to look especially at Isaiah 53, because what you find is this same story being not just told, but prophesied about. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4, beginning, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of, iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, there are many people in the religious world today that would look at a passage like this and they would try to say, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that, that ultimately our sins, are, were, uh, are, are the guilt that we have ultimately was transferred over to Jesus, making him the guilty party. Making him the one that actually, you know, uh, was, was the, making him the reason for why the sacrifice had to be given in the first place. And that's not at all what the Bible talks about from beginning to end, from cover to cover. It never even suggests that. What it does suggest is what you actually see in Genesis chapter 22, that here's a party that had nothing to do with, with the uh, need for the sacrifice in the first place. And yet... Here, God says, I will take this sacrifice. I will take this offering. Though it was not deserved, I will take this in, 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 in uh, another's place. And all the while, what you find is the Father's willful activity in delivering the Son over. I love John chapter 19 because especially, uh, especially in, 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 that, in, in John's account of the gospel, he uses the, the word that, that Jesus gave up his spirit. And all throughout what you see is that notion that Jesus is giving himself to the mob. That the Father is giving, delivering over to the mob. Because all the while, Jesus, as he's being scourged, as he's being beaten, as he's being mocked, do you think that he's incapable of freeing himself of those bonds, of those measly, uh, mere human bonds? 
Do you think that he couldn't have called down the legions of angels? No, he could have. One of the things that I think is amazing and, and rather terrifying and shocking is when the, the guards are, are beating him and they're mocking him. They say, well, hey, prophesy. Who's beating you? Jesus could have answered them with their name. And that's one of the reasons that his silence during all of that is so, uh, is so disorienting. Because when we go through things like that, we are anything but silent. Jesus was, and I think for a purpose, just another, another indicator of him being that, that lamb led to slaughter. G Genesis 22, I think, is a picture of what took place at the cross, just trying to emphasize and highlight and, and heighten just the severity of what occurs, the seriousness of what occurs at the cross. Now, this is where the connection kind of uh, diverges from Jesus because, as we said just a moment ago, in this story, in, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham stretched out his hand to kill his son, the son of promise, his only son, who, son whom he loves, but his hand was stayed, and the dagger didn't have to fall. But when you get to the cross, that's not what happens. Rather, the blade falls. And the son is struck. And because of the sins of others. And because of a death that was not deserved for him. As we've already indicated a little bit uh, already. Going on past that, Abraham was, I would say Abraham was right when he said that God would provide the lamb for sacrifice, for the offering. He was 100% right. Now, I don't think that he necessarily predicted how God was going to provide that lamb, I think that he really was going to give uh, Isaac up, as you see in Genesis chapter 22, uh, in verses 7 through 8 especially, uh, or 7 through 10, you, uh, as you see at the very end of that, Abraham stretching out his hand to kill Isaac, but even at the beginning, as Isaac, the, the, the one that was going to be slain, is questioning the father, saying, Where, where's the offering? And Abraham says, God will provide. He was right, but I... And, and I will just say, God does do that in the immediate sense. He provides the ram in the thicket, and through uh, that, and that is the sacrifice that is is what leads to Isaac's salvation ultimately, physically. But in the grander scheme, in the scheme of redemption, in the story of the Bible, what you find is that He does absolutely provide that lamb. But this lamb was one that had much more impact. This blood of the lamb had much more power in. Uh, First, or we'll get to First Peter in just a moment. But in John chapter 1, what you find once more is, I think, just a fulfillment of this kind of language. John, as he is, is preaching and during his ministry, he sees Jesus. And what does he say in verse 36? In John chapter 1 and verse 35, again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And Jesus truly was that Lamb of God that God had been preparing and, and, and planning on providing the entire time from Genesis chapter 3 and from even before creation as we're told in Ephesians. He had this plan set and he knew that this would be that Lamb that ultimately provided that, that sacrifice that stayed the penalty of death for those who actually deserved it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, this is what Peter, I think, really gets to. In verse 17, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You know, as we go through the book of Hebrews, 
or the, the epistle of Hebrews, what you find is constantly the, the Hebrew writer saying the old covenant, that, that, was, that was a good thing. It was something that God gave to his people ultimately to lead them to righteousness, to lead them to him. So it wasn't a bad thing. But just understand, the blood of bulls and goats, it was never going to be able to redeem guilty sinners. It was never, ever going to be able to, to justify those who actually brought a, a just penalty upon themselves. But you have this, as, as I keep saying, culmination, this fulfillment of that lamb with blood, uh, that unblemished lamb with blood that could actually wash away our sins. That's what you find in the story of the cross, the story of the Bible. Um, and Genesis 22, again, is just a depiction, just, I think, highlighting that sacrifice. Finally, God sends his son in place of the death that is deserved. And that is the main point, I would say, about this, this whole, this whole uh, last point, is the notion that in Isaac, in ourselves, from Isaiah chapter 53, as we were reading just a moment ago in verses 4 through 6, this is the gospel being prophesied about, at least to a degree. Again, Abraham, when he, when he is going through this in Genesis chapter 22, I don't think that he necessarily could see fully what was coming. And, and maybe, he didn't even, uh, maybe he didn't even understand that, that God was going to send uh, another lamb. But he, there were indicators all throughout the Old Testament story and indicators that showed that God was going to provide for the forgiveness of sins for the justification of those who deserve the penalty of death. Now, you look at this story specifically at the cross, and even in Genesis 22, and you kind of ask the question, and sometimes people will ask this uh, as, as, you know, why would God ask Abraham to do this? Why is it that God would do, uh, would, would ask Abraham to do su such a really extreme sacrifice? That as you look through this story, it... This is an idea of a, of a tragic sacrifice, and, and it does look extreme, and it does look dark, and it is very sorrowful and somber the entire way through. And so sometimes people ask the question, why is it that God would do, do this? And I think that's exactly the point, because it is, a, it is an extreme sacrifice that must be given. And not, and not from us, but rather by God himself. The one who absolutely did not have to do this. The one who absolutely didn't deserve that kind of pain. But rather, he gave himself, he gave his only begotten son, so that those of us who did deserve that punishment and penalty could be justified. So that we could be with him once more and that we wouldn't have to be, stay in that position of separation from a relationship with God. In Romans chapter 3, I think this is a really good kind of summation from, from the Bible as to why this had to happen. In verse 25 of Romans chapter 3, as he's talking about Jesus Christ, he says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I actually just recently shared on Facebook a post of a lesson that was preached not too long ago by Brother Marshall McDaniel. I don't know why I've been quoting him so often lately, but I think you've heard his name at least three times today. Regardless, uh, he, he preached a lesson not too long ago on the book of Romans. It was kind of a survey of the entire book. And, and the, one of the theme that he had picked up on and that he was talking about was this idea of divine justice. 
And it was, and I thought it was just a fantastic study. But I wanted to repeat something that he said, specifically as he was talking about this passage, the idea of God being just and the justifier. And he mentioned three things as he was trying to summarize what he was talking about. And that is that Jesus at the cross is a demonstration of God's justice. Because from the very outset, what we understand is, one, God is just. Two, the only way he can remain just while making unjust people just or righteous is by demonstrating wrath. And three, Jesus has appeased that wrath. So I'll just repeat that one more time because I'm afraid that I might have misspoken. But God is just. And because he is just, wrath must be, uh, must be dealt out to those who deserve it. And the only way he can remain just while making unjust people just is by demonstrating that wrath. And that wrath was appeased in Jesus. And that's what you find, that, that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, that God was saying that he was going to bring all that time ago, I'm going to bring that sacrifice, I'm going to bring that servant that is going to justify you. And it's not going to be, as, as I think the religious world, they, a, a, a great portion, a majority of the religious world today really dumbs down this message. And they, I think, just depreciate the power of this message. It's not just... Uh, it, it, it's not like we're saying that, you know, it, it, it's really just a small thing to, to be justified by Christ. It's not a small thing to just say, well, I believe, and all of a sudden we're justified. No. It's an understanding of what God had to do to make us just. It is an understanding of what God had to do to put us in a right relationship with Him. And then acting in correlation to that sacrifice, meaning that we give up everything and anything that he says this cannot be a part of your life anymore, and now you follow me. And not only that, but you pick up your own cross. And you pick up that very symbol of shame, and you pick up the very symbol of, of death, especially, particularly in the Roman culture. And you carry that until the day of your death so that you can keep on having a relationship with me. That is the story of the gospel, that God had to bring justice about to remain just himself, and he brings that justice through Christ. Now, let me just say, this story isn't just important for, I think it's necessary application of what true faith looks like. That is one aspect of this story that we can never let go of. But I, I just think it is made even more important as it is preaching about the gospel as I think you have a depiction in Jesus, and that is that Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, was delivered over to the hands of sinful men to be put to death in our place, but was too powerful to be held by the bonds of death, and on the third day rose again so that we can be justified through him and joined in a resurrection like his, to be joined in, in his life. Now, I would just ask, if you're a Christian, you're someone who has been justified by that sacrifice and has, and has put yourself under the stricture, strictures under the law of the king. And maybe you've gone astray. Maybe you haven't been living the way that, you're, the way that a kingdom citizen is supposed to live. Well, you can bring yourself back. You can put yourself under his rule once again. And if you are not a Christian, I would just ask, don't you want the justification that the father says he will bring, that he will give to you through the sacrifice of his son. Now that's not going to be easy necessarily. It wasn't easy for Abraham to obey all the time. Genesis 22. In fact, there are some rules, there are some things that God has in his law for Christians that frankly can really go against the grain to what we're used to at least before we actually 
as we are used to, not the law of Christ, but rather the law of the sons of disobedience, the law of this world. Would you join in that sacrifice where Jesus says, I'm willing to put you in a right relationship with the Father if you will just pick up your own cross and you follow me and you are willing to make me your king? Are you willing to make him your king tonight? If you are subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.